From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, I'm talking with a scientist who investigates electrical disturbances in the brain and heart. Dr. David Auerbach is an assistant professor of pharmacology at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Auerbach. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join us. So you were a graduate pharmacology student at Upstate from 2004 to 2011, and then you worked at the University of Michigan Medical School and the University of Rochester Medical Center before you joined the staff at Upstate last year. When did you start studying electrical disturbances in the brain and heart? Yes. Um, basically, my interest and in training began, as you mentioned, during graduate school at Upstate here. I had the fortunate opportunity to work for one of the real pioneers in the field of cardiac arrhythmia, uh, research the electrical disturbances in the heart here, that we were trying to understand the uh, causes for them. And that was with um, Jose Halife, and uh, he had a large team of um, investigators with many different areas of expertise. And then during that period, uh, we moved to the University of Michigan where I finished up my graduate training but stayed an upstate student. Uh, and then ultimately moved on to a new laboratory, Laboratory Lori Isom, for my postdoctoral fellowship. And that's where I really initiated uh, some of my particular area of you know, interest in looking outside of what I call the classic organ of interest. Uh, we were studying a model of epilepsy, you know, patients with severe forms of seizures, you know, these which are due to similar to the heart, but electrical disturbances in the brain there. And in this model, someone was studying the brain, and uh, I studied the heart, and we were able to show that you know, the same mutation that was messing up electrical function in the brain was also messing up electrical function in the heart. This really helped uh, advance the field and people's understanding that you need to look outside the classic organ of interest, and um, this could be one of the causes for the high rate of, unfortunately, sudden death in certain forms of epilepsy. When you say classic organ of interest, is that the brain you're talking about? Sure, so uh, in uh, certain diseases, you know, everyone has always kind of studied um, you know, where the, it was first demonstrated. For example, uh, during my postdoctoral fellowship, this was a severe form of epilepsy, so everyone was studying the brain there, and uh, I, you know, looked outside this classic organ, the brain, and looked thus, you know, in the heart. Uh, but then during my time at the University of Rochester, I studied a classically studied cardiac disease called long QT syndrome. Uh, and, um, using a clinical database, actually, was able to demonstrate that not only were these patients with long QT syndrome developing electrical disturbances in their heart in the form of arrhythmias, which has been well-established, we also found that they were also developing electrical disturbances in their brain in the form of seizures. Well, I want to ask you a lot more about that. Um, long QT syndrome, though, uh, I, I want to have you explain that. And from what I understand, um, the QT refers to some tracings on an EKG. It has something to do with the electrical activity of the heart, right? Exactly. So the the QT interval is the time from electrical activation in the lower part of your heart, the ventricles, to the uh, recovery uh, you know, of electrical activity. 
And so importantly, it's a piece the of, uh, a little activity, segment of the heartbeat then. Exactly. It's the time from electrical activation to electrical recovery, you know, in the heart there. And importantly, that electrical activity is what triggers the heart to contract. So unless we have the coordinated electrical activation and recovery in the whole heart, um, you know, we will not have adequate pumping of blood uh, in the heart, you know, is, due to these arrhythmias. Is this a, a, a problem that people are born with? I mean, would a, would a baby, would you find out that you have this as a baby? Sure. So um, a little bit of the history behind it here. Initially, um, people were diagnosing it purely on the EKG, they would see that, as the name implies, QT prolongation on the EKG. Uh, uh, but then uh, in the mid-90s and into the early 2000s, you know, when a lot of genetic uh, work um, you know, took off, we then began being able to map some of these um, diseases that were uh, diagnosed by the EKG now based upon genetic testing. Uh, so long QT syndrome is due to mutations uh, in um, genes that encode um, ion channels or uh, proteins that interact with the ion channel. These ion channels sit on the membrane there and, uh, as the name implies, pass ions back and forth, and that's what triggers or sustains the electrical activity in the heart there. Is so there... long QT syndrome... Can, sorry, can be due to uh, genetic, uh, can be diagnosed via genetic means or through the EKG. Are there signs or symptoms? Would a, how would a person feel if this was happening to them, if they had a long QT syndrome? Sure. Um, you likely would not feel any symptoms due to the QT prolongation, yet um, if a unfortunate uh, case arose where you developed a an arrhythmia, you know, that can, you know, lead to loss of consciousness, um, you know, a, ra a feeling of erasing of your heart, or in the most horrible cases, and sometimes is the first demonstration, you know, is sudden death. Um, you know, wow. the, you know, cardiac arrhythmia is a leading cause of sudden death. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. David Auerbach about his research into electrical disturbances of the heart and brain. Now, you've described what this does to the heart. Are people with long QT syndrome, are they at greater risk for seizures? Sure. So um, while I was at the University of Rochester, I um, looked at this. Um, but my training was always, you know, in at the basic science level in animals or cellular models here, um, and I wanted to extend my research program uh, to take it to the patient level and use uh, patient results to help fuel um, my results that I could then bring back to the bench there. And University of Rochester has a really neat. Um, database available. It's called the Long QT Registry, and it includes over 22,000 people. And we have really detailed um, information about these patients. And uh, in that database, we showed that uh, patients who had genetic mutations that are associated with or cause Long QT syndrome 
also were at an increased risk of developing electrical disturbances in the brain in the form of seizures. Uh, so yes, patients with long QT syndrome, um, our results suggest that they are at an increased risk of seizures as well. Yet um, this is something that's uh, been more anecdotal in the field, and we were the first to really take at a large database type level. Uh, but there's a lot of work still to be done to really confirm that. And that's what my research program is exploring at Upstate. So the electrical activity you talk about in the heart and the brain, in this situation, is it the same electrical activity? Is it connected? Sure. So uh, there is a uh, electrical connection between the brain and the heart in the autonomic nervous system. So that's one area that we're exploring. Also, another uh, hypothesis that we're testing right now is, is that same mutant channel that's expressed in the heart that's messing up electrical function in the heart also present in the brain and messing up electrical function there. Can you tell me about the long QT syndrome model that you created? Can it be used to predict which patients are most at risk for sudden death from heart problems or, or seizures? Sure. So we have an animal model that, uh, unlike a smaller mouse or rat models, we have a larger animal model here uh, that uh, mimics the same cardiac electrical activity that's seen in people. Uh, and what we did is we went into the precise genetic code of this animal here and tweaked it just like, or mutated, just like as seen in people here. And using this uh, model, we're able to um, get recordings from these animals, just like, you know, if a patient came into, you know, where you can get EEG, which are electrical activity, electrical activity recordings in the brain, as well as EKG recordings, electrical activity recordings in the heart there. And we can study the effects that this uh, mutation that's seen in people uh, has upon electrical activity in the heart and the brain. Also, we're able to test various uh, drugs uh, uh, that may be uh, helpful you know, in these people to help prevent these arrhythmias or seizures. Uh, and ultimately, it, it helps uh, examine uh, the true effects that this mutation has and whether this mutation can directly or indirectly cause arrhythmias or seizures. So that's something you're still working on. I mean, you're going to, it sounds like, devote your career to this. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I uh, fortunately secured uh, grant funding early in my career to generate this animal model that I foresee being such a valuable tool, um, not only for my research program, but to advance the field as well. As you know, in the field right now, there is still a fair amount of controversy of whether patients with long QT syndrome are in fact developing seizures because, you know, an arrhythmia and a seizure both can lead to a loss of consciousness. Uh, so there's, you know, still some questions here, but with this model, we're able to really examine the underlying causes or mechanisms for this to really nail it down. Well, it sounds like if you, if you figure out the underlying cause, maybe there'll be a way to come up with a treatment 
that kind of tickles exactly. both, right? Absolutely. You know, we really want to, you know, advance our ability to diagnose it, you know, to, you know, whether to suggest that, you know, cardiologists and neurologists need to be sitting around the same table uh, in discussing and managing these patients, as well as, you know, developing new therapeutics, you know, whether it be devices or medications to help prevent these events. Can you tell us about the project you have underway that involves wearable technology to detect cardiac arrhythmia markers in patients with epilepsy? Sure. Um, you know, everyone's very interested in wearable technology right now. You know, it's, it enables you uh, to get continuous recording. And that's what is of the most uh, interest and value to me is that, for example, if you go into you know, your cardiologist or your family practice physician and they do you know, an EKG recording from you, but that's under a resting condition. You're sitting in the exam room. They get the recording from you. It's about 10 seconds long. Uh, but with wearable technology, we're able to get continuous, theoretically 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year recording from you. Uh, and uh, our wearable technology, what we're looking at is not only to get uh, recordings of like your heart rate, which you might get from your wearable, but to get the actual EKG recording, as well as your respiration, your activity, your temperature, um, you know, your, um, the amount of oxygen that's in your blood, your oxygen saturation, you know, which may help us to look, you know, take a more multi-system uh, approach to understanding these diseases here on a continuous, level here so we can understand, are there any potential markers that may predict whether uh, you're at a high risk of developing one of these uh, horrible lethal events here? Uh, and also, uh, what, you know, what is causing what in terms of you know, the timeline between each of these multi-system changes? Oh, well, it's fascinating work. I, I want to thank you so much to Dr. David Auerbach, an assistant professor of pharmacology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.